0: G'day, humans. Happy festive season. We've done it. We've done it, haven't we? This is it. It's almost the end of 2021. Uh, Wasn't as good as we thought it was going to be. At the end of 2020, I think everyone was like, oh, this pandemic has been terrible. And Aren't we glad it's over? Vaccines are coming. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. A few months, we'll be out of all this. And then Delta. And now Omicron. But maybe Omicron will be okay. Look, I'm I'm not going to talk about that again. I'm going to talk about Bridget Bridget Delaney, who's a columnist for The Guardian Australia and is one of those rare people who, uh, who I love because she's willing to say things that are going to alienate her side of politics or the other side of politics, and she's going to say them without fear or favor. I hadn't realized until we had this conversation that that might partly be due to her fascination with stoicism. I wanted to talk to Bridget about the Australian experience of the pandemic and lockdowns and human rights and the in, the overreach of some Australian police and the whole campaign in America about Australia has fallen and just what to, how to think as we are emerging. Now I sound like someone who I was just criticising from 12 months ago who was getting prematurely optimistic about the pandemic being over, but assuming that we are now emerging from the pandemic. I wanted to sort of look back on it with someone who, is nonpartisan and assess Australia's response. Uh, And yet Bridget's so much more interesting than that because she does think about sort of how we should want things, whether we should want things in a stoic sort of Buddhist sense, how we might find more contemplation in our lives and how we might reach across the aisle and understand each other a little bit more. There are still some questions available for my Ask Me Anything episode. Uh, Some great contributions so far, but I'm sure you've got a question. I'm sure you've got something you're noodling on that uh, you've been meaning to get around to emailing us that you haven't quite done. Uh, send an email to uncomfyconvos at gmail.com, uncomfy with a Y, convos at gmail.com, or tweet at me with a question that you want me to address in our end of year Ask Me Anything episode, which will be coming up. Uh, I hope you have a lovely uh, a lovely Christmas. If I don't speak with you before then, enjoy this chatty dialogue with the one and only Bridget Delaney. Things that I thought has been in, that I think has been interesting throughout the pandemic is how divided we've all become between the anti lockdowners and the public safety hawks. Uh, you know, Australia has been this weird petri dish where a lot of my followers are still in the States and have just been looking on with complete bafflement at Australia's lockdowns this year since everything basically got back to normal there, you know, end of last year. And I don't feel like there are a great many voices in Australia who are particularly sane on the way that Australia has managed the pandemic. There'll be a lot that Australia should congratulate itself for. And then the things, the instances in which we might have become a little paranoid, a little bit too uh, willing to dob each other in, a little bit too hasty to embrace unscientific responses that perhaps went too far. It's like, I felt like there are not many voices that aren't from the crazy right who've been able to articulate that position, and you occasionally have, and I wonder as the pandemic winds down, hopefully, what you make of the past two years.
1: Such an interesting question, and I think um, historians and social scientists will be studying the answer to that for for many years. Um, I think what happened was... Things changed very, very quickly in March 2020 and people went into a almost collective fight, flight or freeze response and, um, and we were very quick to sort of hand over a lot of power to the government um, and put a lot of trust in the government and a huge amount of, um, I guess, civil rights and freedom of movement really uh, wound back in a very quick space of time and it then became very hard, um, particularly on social media, to question any of that. You know, you were told that you were being um, anti-public health or you were, you know, by speaking out against over-policing of certain health orders that you were going to cause people to die. So I think there, there was a real retreat in... Um, in public space, both, you know, on social media, which you know I consider a public space, um, and also just in people's—I mean, people couldn't really get together to discuss these things because they were locked down. But um, you know, there was a sense of being a bit, a bit scared to stick your head up above the parapet and question um, the government's response because it was seen almost as being unpatriotic. Um, and having mm. a, bit of a or
0: like homicidal, I mean, as you say, like <laughs> you know people are saying you're you 're killing you 're killing people. It almost reminds me in a strange way of like the the trend the extreme trans debates, which I mean people can 't even talk about anymore, but i I do because I think reason is more important than political sloganeering where uh, you know the the moment someone on Twitter suggests that there could be any kind of social or cultural contagion effect taking place between. Uh, adolescent teenage girls who all become trans at once or you know who question whether or not the the pipeline into hormone therapy uh, needs a little bit more scrutiny in the UK or in certain states in the United States or anyone who says that there is there are certain biological differences between the sex even if it's made in the most respectful possible way towards all of our trans friends literally gets deluged with you have the blood of trans children on your hands of trans adolescents on your hands and in the same way there's there's just no way to seemingly bridge the divide between the anti-lockdowners and the pro-lockdowners without the you know even just saying something like that there's no evidence that curfews at night impede the spread of coronavirus terribly much all of a sudden that means that you're killing grandma
1: exactly so um you know where do you go? do you withdraw as a voice um you know it's uh I mean what's happening now is that i'm I'm interviewing a lot of civil libertarians um at the moment to and asking them what was your position in the pandemic and um do you think you acted you know um dynamically enough when a lot of rights were gone and they they replied that when it comes to rights and this can be applied to anything um there's a big kind of stoush over the definitions so is it my right to um travel the country or is it the the rights of um uh, of people in in communities without covid to be free from the potential of getting the disease so there are all these kind of interesting um almost philosophical arguments um going on but usually when something that affects people gets debated it can be, the, the facts can be debated and positions can be debated without death threats people being attacked people being cancelled so you saw this kind of very unreasonable um almost a rage around the debate which meant that you know very few people really w- were able to say that they had properly analyzed the issues because there was no debate hmm. I don't know
0: if that and a when? No, 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 it makes sense. I mean, I'm just thinking now as I think about the images that went viral of, uh, you know, right-wing protesters in Melbourne protesting vaccination, vac- vaccine mandates and lockdowns and, and things, how... Uh, sort of universally, that was derided as being deplorable, and of course, violence yeah. is never an answer to anything and yet the the rage that had built up even even if it was inchoate and unhelpful when it finally erupted, it was like there was no understanding or comprehension of why the rage had built up in the first place, what the more what the i guess a lack of generosity to one's opponents on both sides, like with yeah. the the right wing protesters think that Everyone who wants a lockdown wants them forever and wants to usher in authoritarianism and Then the people who are pro lockdown just can 't understand why a small business owner might feel like it 's a little bit overboard to be in the sixteenth week of a lockdown when we 're already at thirty percent vaccination rates and you know there's no risk of the hospitals being overwhelmed, which was the original rationale for lockdowns at the beginning of the pandemic then i don 't know do you think that people can 't see? Their opponent's point of view, or are I mean, unwilling to see it? See it.
1: They can't see it and they don't want to see it because, in their minds, the stakes are so high. So, you know, people often say in an argument, it's not a matter of life and death. But a lot of people felt with this that it was a matter of life and death. Like, if you got the virus because there weren't enough protections around you, if the state hadn't kind of um, made masks mandatory, etc then you would die. So it it suddenly, you know, people's, you could see almost people's blood pressure go up when you talk about it because they are, as I was saying earlier in that fight or flight response where they feel like this is an issue where they're fighting for their lives. And um, I definitely can understand people who work in hospitals and frontline workers having very strong opinions um, because they are the ones who ultimately are most at risk, I think, For a a lot of, say, journalists like myself, I work from home, Um, I, you know, I'm a very low risk of getting the virus just by sitting in my apartment and writing a column. Um, So I I come from a different perspective where there's not so much skin in the game, maybe. Um, But what a lot of people, what I would have liked to have seen more of in the pandemic was people realising that this is a global experience and that What's happening in Victoria might be really different from what's happening in Chile or in um, London or in Italy and looking at different models and saying, well, look, you know, there are different ways of doing this. Other countries have got their own um, perspective, um, including in the US, a much more kind of patchwork libertarian perspective. Um, There is not just one right way of doing, uh, you know, The pandemic.
0: Mm. What do you make of the suspicion and the dobbing? You wrote about dobbers uh, during the Mm. during the lockdown.
1: So I remember reading this short piece in the Age, where it asked readers to write in and and dob in um, people that were flouting stay at home orders. And um, someone wrote in saying, "I saw four teenagers outside the Clifton Hill McDonald's, shoulder to shoulder." You know, it's disgusting and all these other people were writing in with, you know, neighbours that were doing um, things that, that weren't, um, you know, weren't allowed. And I just thought of those poor teenagers at McDonald's who hadn't really been to school for two years and um, were denied a social life and maybe they shouldn't have been congregating, four of them in public. But I then just thought, oh, how mean and kind of petty and, you know... Mm. How sad, we are as a nation that we'll we've got our like kind of little spy glasses on and our notebook, and we're making notes of the people that are you know not doing the right thing without knowing the context of why those people might be in public, like without knowing the full story, and then being yeah. prepared to tell the authorities about them, and then let those those kids or you know people who often, you know it's often people who don't speak. English or um, you know from a a kind of different background just leaving them to the mercy of um, whatever like not huge nasty overinflated fine um, that uh, was part of the public health orders and and possibly kind of um, you know ruining ruining their lives. Um, There was one I was coming into my apartment in Sydney in the middle of lockdown and there was a delivery driver sitting um out the front and he was almost in tears and he was saying I don't know how I'm going to pay the fine I've been you know it's two thousand dollars I don't know how I'm going to pay um he uh I think he was a Mexican guy anyway he was really distraught he'd been fined for whether he'd been hanging out with another delivery guy or who knows but you know these fines and um being kind of um scooped up by the cops does have an effect on your life that reverberates sort of down the line. And I I just wanted to draw attention to what, what dobbing can actually do to people.
0: Yeah. And I mean, if you're a teenager, like the calculus is different because we're expecting teenagers to abide by public health rules purely for altruistic reasons. Like they're not at risk of the virus realistically. Uh, You know, the risk to them is vanishingly small. So you know, if you're in your sixties or seventies, then you'd have to be crazy not to take public health rules seriously, because uh, you know it gives a there's a non-negligible chance that you're going to end up in a hospital or worse, still dead if you get the virus. Okay. But if you're 15 or 17, we're expecting them to put as much of a priority on rules that have nothing to do with their well-being as mm-hmm. a 70 year old for whom the rules are life-saving. I mean, fair crack of the whip.
1: Also, I mean, I think if you look overall, the um the way that young people in Australia have responded to, you know, really kind of two years of their 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 prime being um taken from them, they've behaved in remarkably good good spirit um with a, yeah. a great deal of kind of um public service. I would say, you know, you've, I very rarely heard during the pandemic about, I mean, there's the occasional party here or there, but there was also a Lot of um, yeah, I think there was one group of people who were in their 90s who were caught playing cards or something, something like that. So, um, yeah, I think wow. young people did us proud.
0: I love the 90 year old card game. I mean, just throwing caution to the wind, let's go for it, baby. Have some play some canasta, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, the 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 allusion that you make in your piece about dobbers is uh, is to Jeremy Bentham, Bentham's idea of a panopticon. Can you just remind people who didn't do first-year philosophy what a panopticon is? The
1: panopticon was a, a piece of 18th-century architecture designed by um, a guy called Jeremy Bentham, and it was essentially a, a building but also a system of control. So think of a, a prison tower or a prison prison with a watchtower in the middle. So um, the watchtower is in the centre of all the cells and the cell doors are open to the watchtower. So you only need to staff one um, officer on the watchtower who just walks around and can potentially see into hundreds of of cells. Um, and the prisoners don't know they're being watched, so that's the kind of psychological genius, evil genius of the panopticon
0: Wait, the the prisoners know that they are being watched, but don't oh, know yeah. when they're being watched, right? Yeah, so the guard everything. is in the dark, and and you don't you never you know that, that that there could be eyes on you, but you never know that there are whether there are or not.
1: Yeah. So what I meant to say was, you are you could be surveilled at any point in time, and so because you could be surveilled at any point in time, you feel like you're constantly being surveilled. Um, because you can't, yes. you can't see the guard. Um, and when um, we live in an a environment where um, we feel like um, people are watching us um, or we live in an apartment block where people might be listening for sounds of parties or people over, um, that person who might dob on us might not be even home. But if we feel like we have... We are in an environment where people dob. We internalise um, the dobber, so we please ourselves. Um, and also with mobile phones, I've, the first day of um, Sydney's mask mandate, uh, myself and a friend were out um, exercising in Bellevue Hill, and uh, we weren't wearing masks, um, and because we thought that exercise was a you know um, a reason not to wear it. And these two women sort of came down the stairs, and said, one of them started screaming that she was going to call the police, and she went to get a phone to film us without wearing these masks. And um, you know that's the thing you, you're you can be um, filmed by anyone at any point in time because everyone's carrying around um, you know a camera. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a way of it's a great way of doing social control if you don't have enough money to. Um, send actual police out, you just turn your citizens into cops.
0: Yeah, and the I mean the beauty of the Panopticon is you only have to pay for one guard and that one guard mm-hmm. functions as a guard for 500 people who are all prisoners in cells around because they never know when the one guard's going to be looking at them so they can never misbehave. And similarly, i I thought that was a good analogy actually for living in a society where you only need one percent of the population to be dobbers and because everybody might be you you live in constant fear of being turned in in a way i mean i remember during the height of the lockdown you know you were never in new south wales at least it was different in victoria but in new south wales you were never not allowed to exercise at the beach and go for a surf and go for a walk along the beach and go for a bush walk and so on but You weren't allowed to do recreation outside. Mm. And I was at the beach with my kids, uh, you know, exploring rock pools and doing things that sort of border between exercise and recreation. And the cops were wandering around. And one bloke had just gotten out of the surf, sat down on the sand to get something out of his foot or something. And the cops went over to him and started talking to him. And I thought, that is surreal that he's, he's he's miles away from anybody else he poses no threat but he just breached subsection d of clause 17a of you know some arcane public health rule that had been handed down and now he just got unlucky enough that he was in the one, in the wrong spot at the wrong time and he's being moved along by the forces of the of the state and
1: yeah, I think yeah. Everyone, yeah, everyone has a or a lot of people I've swung to have a story like that of either being the person or seeing someone who was doing something innocuous like sitting on a park bench or, you know, um one of my neighbours was sitting um on a fountain eating food that he brought from a market and was fine. Um there's there's a lot of examples, but I felt very constrained um at the time about going on Twitter and complaining about it because you'd get all this blowback. Um, And I was speaking to another journalist yesterday, a guy called Oz Faruqi, who tweeted a lot in the Hmm. pandemic about policing. And um, he just said it was, you know, the the flip between the right and left was really strange in the pandemic. So, um, you know, you had sort of people like Andrew Bolt, um, you know, like speaking up against uh, the India travel ban for example. Um, yes, he's a,
0: a right-wing commentator.
1: Yeah, and a lot of people on the left, um, you know, weren't speaking up to the extent that I had expected they would about, um, you know, civil liberties infringements. So it, it's a... Uh, and the question as to why is, is a really interesting one um, that I, I think is going to be um, with us for a long time because this won't be the last big thing where we're going to have to rein in... Um, certain rights like I'm thinking around like if you have catastrophic climate change and you have a lot of climate refugees suddenly wanting to come in you know do we do what we did in the pandemic and, and shut our borders do we um do we become a fortress again and and what would is there going to be a force from the left that will mobilize to advocate for climate refugees or have we adopted this mentality that we we very kind of eagerly adopted in the pandemic, which was the fortress mentality. So
0: that's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if the people coming in were poor brown people, whether or not the left would be more sympathetic than uh, wealthy white Australians who are trying to return home from the UK.
1: Well, they weren't very sympathetic when um, Chinese Australians were detained at Christmas Island, you know, in the early stages of the pandemic. I, I don't no. recall a huge outcry over that. So
0: or when indians were were kept out i mean what did you make of the whole international border Do you, i think the if there was one the largest uh, i mean i've been the policy against which i've been the strongest crit- critique throughout the whole thing is the shambles of the international border i mean for me having a passport for a country and being a citizen of a country means that you own that country that country is yours it's your homeland you're always entitled to seek refuge in it uh, maybe it's cause I'm the grandchild of Holocaust survivors who were, you know, hounded across Europe and then homeless and, you know, were never accepted by any place they chose to live in. But for me, it's fundamental that if you're an Australian citizen, you get to come to Australia. The, go- like the government can impose quarantine, if the government's going to impose quarantine rules and caps that make it difficult to get back, then it's incumbent on them to figure out a way for there to be an orderly process for people to be uh, processed you can 't outsource to an airline revenue manager in Doha the repatriation of citizens to australia and for for a good twelve to eighteen months it was total chaos, and people could only buy you know incredibly overpriced business class tickets to try to get back and then they 'd be bumped at the last minute when they got to the airport and it was functionally impossible for all but the super wealthy and well connected to get back home and that did not seem to be a priority for the government to address day after day week after week month after month and then year after year like why couldn't you have a an online like visa allocation hotel quarantine allocation thing where people could could go online like you apply for your, your ESTA or your ETA if you're a non-resident of a country when you're going to the if you're getting a travel visa waiver to go to the United States or something you hop online you pay 20 bucks you get it and then it's electronic why couldn't you have that with a number that allocates you a place in hotel quarantine on a certain date or in a certain week or in a certain month and then you take that to the airline and that they 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 are obliged to take that to the bank i mean there are all kinds of ways that it could have been done and i wonder whether or not you think that i'm being uh, hysterical <laughs> about the international border no, no, no. or what I you make of it.
1: very very reasonable josh uh too reasonable for the government i think there's a there's definitely a political um there's a political reason why a lot of the decisions like some decisions that they made were obviously made if, you know were, were a bit chaotic others were i think much more deliberate about the base so i've just finished reading um Sean Kelly's excellent book on Morrison called The Game.
0: Oh, I can't wait. Yeah.
1: yeah it's really good. But he talks about kind of um, who who does he want to help in the pandemic? Who does he want to reach out to? It's it's um, tradies. It's... Um,
0: Meaning the Prime Minister.
1: Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Small to medium businesses, blah, blah, blah. So in the pandemic there was um, support for certain classes of people but not others. So people who work in the arts, um, casual workers, migrant workers, expats, and the university sector were all groups that, you know, they just, it, it's like no one was was looking out for them or, you know, developing policies in their interests. And um, Kelly makes the, Sean Kelly makes the point in this book, which is like they're not Morrison's people. Um, you know, there's always been this thing about expats being tall poppies and, you know, there's this kind of underlying mm. thing of like, mate, you live in the greatest country in the world. Why would you, you know, why would you want to go and live, you know, be a dual citizen or, uh, and it doesn't, and that's a very, very old, um, stale, but still enduring, um, you know, character trait. Whereas the reality for a lot of Australians is that they have partners that are born overseas. They have a parent or two parents that are from another country, um, or they've travelled widely, and they've they you know their business or their friendship network or whatever it is, is is in various countries. So sure, this old well, way of of thinking about expats doesn't click with the reality of a of a global society.
0: And I kept hearing Bridget like, you know, oh they've had plenty of time to get back. You know, it's been twelve months now. Why didn't they come back when the pandemic first hit? Well, I'm sorry, I didn't realise that when I was born as a citizen of this country i was obliged to like get on the next plane home the instant any international crisis happens like what where is that written why did i have to come back in march of 2020 maybe i had a job that i wanted to keep in london maybe i had family as you say maybe, like Who cares when I'm coming back? It's not—it's nobody's business when I come back. It's my choice to be able to come back. And now you're seeing the same dynamic that you're talking about there, it being it not being the PM's people. And I don't want to put all of this on the PM, by the way, because Mm -hmm. I think the left completely failed to stand up for the rights of people to come home as well. Apart Mm -hmm. from, I mean, just now I'm seeing the Labor leader Anthony Albanese getting stuck into the government for not having built massive quarantine facilities purpose-built quarantine facilities so that we can start housing people in them now that we've got the omicron variants mm. like that's is that the liberal position now i mean the smaller liberal is that the human rights the party of human rights and the little guy that we should be building vast quarantine camps uh, to to house people in uh, anyway so now the the dynamic that you're talking about i think is being seen with our attitude towards temporary residents people australians like i think So temporary residents for people who don't know are are not allowed to come into Australia. So you have to be a permanent resident or citizen at the moment. The border has opened, but only for permanent residents. I think people think that that people on temporary resident visas in Australia are just willy-nilly fly-by-nights who have parachuted in temporarily and, you know, are hopscotching back and forth, so let's not let them leave and come back yet. So they can't even come back in even if they test negative and are fully vaccinated. Once you go, you can't get back in, and having spent almost a decade living in New York on temporary residence visas, that was only because I couldn't get a green card I mean they're here most people on temporary residence visas here would love to become permanent residents and love this country and are passionate about living here and If anybody has ties outside of Australia that need to be that deserve to be sustained and rekindled after the pandemic after the worst of the pandemic has subsided, it's people who are temporary residents who obviously by definition have lots of connections to another country and are presumably trying to jump through all of the arcane bureaucratic hoops they need to jump through in order to become permanent residents or maybe citizens one day. And they're the people who are trapped. Mm. And we still, it's not even in the conversation. I mean, how often do you even hear about that crisis? There is no, there's no lobby group. There's no, like no one is going into bat for, basic human rights as i as i see it it's like it's public the public health side of things is the only argument that's that people regard as being a valid one to have and anything else they think is a luxury including like individual rights that we would have taken as sacrosanct 2 years ago
1: so in the public health arguments you know should have should be more sophisticated now that we're we're 20 months into this, so you can understand there was a, a blunt approach in the early days, um, whilst we were still developing vaccines and trying to understand exactly what the virus was. But you know, there's a there's a lot which should be a lot further down the road, even if it is just to build a few Howard Springs um, about about the place. I mean, a, a lot of I guess the similarities between that call to get Australians back home in um, April last year. And um, the temporary migrants is, is about, um, I think it's this kind of loyalty thing, which is you're either, you're either with us or you're not. You know, it's a, it's a binary thing. And so the idea that someone's a temporary migrant puts them in the not camp, um, the idea that someone might have a mortgage um, and a job in New York and be a dual citizen or have a green card Puts them in the not not one of us camp. So it's mm. it's the thing of you know to be to be Aussie in Morrison's Australia is you know to be all in to wear the Australian flag face mask um, to think that this is the best country <laughs> in the world and uh, you know uh, mm. you're, and you're either with us or you're you're against it. And I, I, I hope that, you know, this moment passes and we, I, I think we were in a position definitely 10 or so years ago where, you know, overseas travel was inexpensive, people, people moved around the world really easily, um, fell in love, formed relationships, had kids, um, built businesses. And Australia, despite its distance, was really part of the globalised world. Um, at least, kind of culturally and socially. And now I feel like we've taken a big step back. And there's kids that probably should have been backpacking around Europe for the last couple of years that yeah, you know, home with mum and dad.
0: Did you do a backpacking thing when you were younger?
1: Well, um, I finished university in the late '90s, and plane tickets cost as much then as they do now. So, um, which is what like. 25 years ago so I had to I had to work about four jobs saved up all my money and did a trip around Europe for six months and then I went and worked in Ireland in a pub in Dublin in the Temple Bar and I had these very romantic kind of notions of Ireland because I'm you know 100% ethnically Irish both sides of my family are from there and I went over there and just it just was tough and rough and um you know, there was a lot of boozing and there was a lot of... In you know, Ireland? In the Ireland.
0: <laughs> there
1: was a lot of, kind of sadness about the place as well and um, and I couldn't get a good coffee. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I have since returned and I appreciate it more, but it was one of those things where it's one of those countries where you you romanticise to the point that, you know, all your illusions are gonna fall apart on first contact.
0: Yeah, it can't possibly live up to it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What about you?
0: Um, you- yeah, I know I did I did. I mean so the same story. Uh yeah, it was um yeah, late nineties, worked four jobs, uh and travelled and saved up money and travelled around and just backpacked through yeah, Asia, Europe, the States. Uh, it was fantastic. I mean, best best thing I ever did. Between this was between high school and and before going to uni, I got I I got into uni and then deferred for a year, so I knew what I was coming back to, mm. uh, which was yeah, terrific.
1: And isn't it amazing how much um, when you're that age, like how much kind of discomfort you can put up with, you know, like yes, sleeping, you know, in a room with thirty other people on a in a terrible bunk bed while someone's vomiting and another person near you is having sex and <laughs> and you know you've only, you've only had four hours to eat the night before, and you know you've had a sandwich. All we've eaten all day is a sandwich, and that's all fine. Um, Absolutely, it's yeah,
0: it's exciting. You've got a very high threshold, Uh <laughs> and also we didn't have we didn't have devices and social media. I mean, I don't want to sound like the cranky old man, but like it was different when you were completely alone. I mean, I was. I I, th- I think there was something bracing and character building about being truly disconnected, unconnected, uh, you know, even just the global financial system was not such that you could just walk up to any ATM and just draw money out. Uh, things were sort of complicated. You had to find the right bank and there were still travelers checks and no, no mobile phones. And I think that was just so much more exciting, so much more electrifying than the way that we can travel today.
1: I think because we didn't know any different. Like I remember meeting, I was kind of months deep into a trip and had picked a bar from the Lonely Planet in Madrid to meet some friends from Melbourne. Um, And, uh, you know, the arrangement was made months and months and months ago and they they turned up. They were about four hours late (laughs) and I was very, very anxious. But they they turned up and now, of course, you just check where they are. You'd be like, where are you? Yeah, Uh, yeah. So there's, I mean, there's been some interesting pieces written about what that does, um, what the ability to be in touch always does to your sense of, you know, self and autonomy and um, resilience. And, you know, there's there's a lot um, to be said for not having a device to rely on, of being mm. of being alone as well, like being, um, you know, in a public place with nothing, nothing to do, just sitting there and waiting and not. Sort of looking down at your
0: phone. Um, Yeah, well, there's being alone, and then there's being bored. So I mean, being alone is interesting. And I was, I mean, I was remembering the other day when I was fifteen, meeting, making a a, arranging with some with a friend to go to the movies, and you'd arrange to meet them outside the movie theater at two o'clock, and you'd get there at two o'clock, and if at two o if at two ten they weren't there there was nothing you could do. I mean, you you just stood there waiting for 10 minutes and hoping that eventually they would show up. Or you would just look at the clouds and you'd watch people going by. And it's amazing to me that I now find that amazing because it seems like such a simple and obvious thing. But now I would be incredibly fidgety and impatient if I didn't have a way of asking them, you know, when I should expect them and should I go inside and buy popcorn already. Uh So the the aloneness, I think, when you're away from your familiar environment and away from your loved ones is something we've lost. Mm. But the incapacity for boredom Mm. is something we've lost. And this brings us to the other fascination of yours, which is stoicism. You're writing a book about Mm. stoicism. Mm. What is it and why?
1: So it's a, uh, it's not to be confused with the, uh, you know, the, the common sort of um, usage of Stoic, which is to to bear things, um, you know, in an unemotional way. Um, stoic philosophy was an ancient Greek and Roman philosophy that um, essentially, it's having a bit of a renaissance at the moment with Silicon Valley and people like Tim Ferriss, um, uh very pro-Stoic and have have got the message out there but I mean Stoicism's about how to be in the world um, and have a, a really kind of full social professional you know spiritual life but not suffer more than you have to so a lot of Stoic philosophy is about how to suffer less and there's rules around how you do that and it's been really Interesting, learning those rules and seeing if they can if I can apply them. Um, Some of them are very difficult to apply, but it's a very (laughs) and it's also cradle to grave. So um, and it's a fully intact system that you can integrate into your into your life. Um, And it's it's been my kind of fascination for the last few years, and I'm I'm doing a book on it, and I feel like I've read nothing but Stoic texts. Uh, for that period Mm. of time Um, so the manuscripts due in a couple of weeks and yes
0: wow is this all are you are you pouring over Marcus Aurelius and um, the ancients
1: yeah so the main the three main Stoics that I've been engaged with are the ones that people kind of that most people read about because their work is the one that is the most intact Um, that's Marcus Aurelius Seneca and a guy called Epictetus. And why these three are really interesting is that, I mean, firstly, their work survives, so we can study it. Um, but secondly, they're all from different, they come at Stoicism from very different life, you know, experiences. So Marcus Aurelius, most powerful man in the world, um, Roman emperor, um, incredibly privileged, incredibly wealthy, very, very powerful. Um, Seneca was more like a kind of Malcolm Turnbull sort of character, like a, <laughs> um, a self-made, you know, self-made, um, became very, very wealthy and was involved, deeply involved in politics, um, but also was a bit of a renaissance man. So wrote plays, um, was involved in, um, you know, big philosophical debates at the time. And his work survives. And then the third one was a guy called Epictetus, uh, who was a slave and was lamed by his master, so he was um, differently abled. And uh, he then, once he was freed, set up a he set up a philosophy school, and his handbook on Stoicism still survives to this day. And those three provide a really interesting picture of of the Roman aspects of of the philosophy and. Um, yeah, they, they particularly during the pandemic, they've been great to read.
0: Yeah, earlier in this conversation I asked you how did you take the idea of, oh, that would be a nice thing to do, it would be nice to be more present and to spend more time with myself rather than being distracted all the time. How did you take that and actually put it into practice? Is this maybe part of the answer to that?
1: I mean, I think with Sto- there's a, a big part of stoicism is contemplation. So um, they had a journaling well, definitely Seneca and Marcus Aurelius had journaling practices, which is um, at the end of each day taking the journal and saying, okay, well, how did today go? Um, Could I have done better? You know, did I handle everything appropriately? Um, Was it a good day? Was I a good person in the world today? And, you know, that was a a nightly practice. Um, I think, you know, still valuable even now. Mm.
0: What are the big takeaways for you, apart from that from Stoicism? Because I there there seems to be an intersection uh, between. I mean, I think maybe this is a mishmash that is partly the responsibility of m- the fault of of Silicon Valley types who uh, who blend it all into a bi- into a kind of New Ageism. But I regard the sort of secular Buddhist tenets of the East and the tenets of Stoicism as interlocking in a kind of exhortation to be more mindful, more present, less caught up in uh, regretting the past and fearing the future, uh, making friends with the possibility of total tragedy and calamity uh, rather than rather than fearing it. Like, there, is, there, is there overlap there?
1: Yeah, there's definitely overlap. I mean, a lot of the overlap comes from attachments, so they're, I mean, this is the hard, one of the hardest things to master in, in Stoicism and I'd say Buddhism as well, which is desire. So um, the Stoics say there are only three things that are in your complete control and those are your character, your reactions and how you treat others and everything else is out of your control. So you shouldn't concern yourself with things that are out of your control. Now, that's great advice but when you desire something, so say I really desire um, i desire a place on Sydney Harbour, I want to buy an apartment on Sydney Harbour and I, I have one that I really desire but it's far too expensive. So it's out of my control. You know, I can't, um, you know, a, an apartment may not come up that's in my price range. I may bid on it and I may miss out. You know, there's all sorts of things about that desire that are out of my control. So in desiring it, I will only suffer. And so, they're really all about like how how can we just kind of lessen this suffering thing? Well, don't don't want the apartment, you know. Like if you get it, great. But <laughs> don't, don't lust after it, and that is a very hard lesson. And it, it that does crossover with Buddhism, um, mm. and there's also the, the impermanence of life kind of lesson. And um, also the thing that they're really into, which I find fascinating, is. Um, change and how how much things are constantly changing that we're not even particularly aware of but we're all aging uh, the seasons are changing the politics is changing just when we get used to one reality it, it shifts and um both stoicism and buddhism um but particularly stoicism is really great on on moving with the change on on not um being resistant and um yeah, not getting Mm. upset.
0: When some people hear the the point about not wanting the apartment on Sydney Harbour, not being attached to your wants, they can misunderstand that as being a lack of motivation, a lack of aspiration, a lack of stretching oneself. Like, but you know, if I don't really want things, then I'm just going to, I could just lie around on the couch and just watch TV all day. That would be, that wouldn't be a great way of living. And one distinction that I found really useful is the difference between being attached to a goal and being committed to a goal. I think this is, I think this comes from the landmark education, uh, outfit, which is, which is an outgrowth of the old hippie 1960s, um, est, uh, movement, which is sort of a form of secular Buddhism repackaged for like modern corporations and individuals to have breakthrough breakthroughs and things. And, uh, they have some wonderful, uh, wonderful ways of packaging it, which is you can be, committed to an outcome and to producing that outcome, and you can give 110% to make it happen, but don't be attached to whether or not it does happen. In other words, don't find yourself, uh, find your emotions on a roller coaster that is contingent on things that are outside your control. So have the commitment that motivates you to do everything that you need to do to make the world change, and then whether the world changes or not in the way that you want it to, be unruffled by the outcome don't be attached to it and i like that
1: yeah that is precisely um what stoicism says as well like uh they would they would be horrified Uh, marcus aurelius would be horrified if he thought his um his meditations meant you know lying on the couch all day um these guys were very active in public life they were very successful they were very ambitious but they had this concept of it's called preferred indifference which is um, you would prefer something to happen, but you should remain indifferent and wealth comes under that. So um, it's preferable to be wealthy. You, have a, you tend to have a better life, um, but you should be indifferent because wealth is outside your control and it can be taken from you at any time. You could get sick and, you know, lose it or, you know, lose your job or someone could rob you. You know, there's, there's so many things um, that can affect, can affect wealth. And so, great to have, but yeah, don't get too attached.
0: Mm. We briefly mentioned devices and the virtue of loneliness and the virtue of boredom and how devices are robbing us of them. Specifically, social media on devices is the last thing I just want to pick your brain about because you've mentioned a couple of times that that Twitter is a, a, a cesspool that will be extre- <laughs> that will extremify any uh, of your opinions and and lash back at them. What do you think is the impact of social media at the moment?
1: I mean, I think social media at the moment, um, depending on what platform you're on, but I, I I see a lot of negatives in it right now. Um, I have in the past had really great, I, I really enjoyed it, but the moment the emotions that come up for me with Instagram is envy um, and with Twitter it's fear and anger. So, those are the kind of two dominant um, and I'm not I don't use Facebook but uh, you know the I I think noticing the feeling that you have when you're on social media is a really important signal so it's like how am I feeling after 20 minutes on Twitter like do I feel energized do I feel excited by the debates have I had a good laugh you know is there been some funny tweets or do I feel um, do I feel angry or do I feel um, the fear thing is when you know, you have an opinion that people disagree with and you get, um, you know, people go for you in a way that can feel very um, intense. So, yeah, I'm having a break from both those platforms at the moment and really enjoying the break.
0: Mm. Do you think it's having an impact on, I mean, I know that it's having an impact on my attention, so maybe that's the way that I should frame that. That the, the, the There's a, a line by... Uh, I think it's Cal. It's not Cal Sustine. It's Cal Newport who wrote. Who wrote Deep Work? work, Yeah, yeah. Uh, And I think it's Cal's line where he says something like, uh, "Social media is fracturing time or fracturing attention into shards too small to construct a a purpose-driven life out of." Something like Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And that resonated because the the bitty bitty drip drip dopamine hit of whatever's the latest most interesting thing to happen in your feed is dramatically impeding my ability to read long novels, uh, you know, focus on more meditative ways of thinking. And I, I shudder to think what it must be like if your brain is growing and evolving as a, an adolescent with that being the pace of distraction.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's um you realize well this is what I've realized when I got concussed which is I've got like two brain cells left <laughs> you know <laughs> I can't waste them on on Twitter um when you when you realize that your your mental energy is finite you very quickly work out what's important and um, social media is first thing to go um in terms of small brains um or de- developing brains. You know, it's, it's like the iPhone is not that old. It's 2007, so I, I look forward to studies um, as to what it's done to, um, you know, attention span over the long term. But I, I know that, like, two of my favourite novelists, Zadie Smith and Jonathan Franzen.
0: Mm. Mm. Oh, <laughs> Those are my two favourites.
1: Oh, they're great, aren't they? They're so good.
0: In fact, the novel that, I, that I'm just finding myself challenging Trying myself to get into his friends his new novel.
1: Oh, it's wonderful! It's yeah,
0: um, which I'm loving, but it's just I, I don't have like time to carve out the we'll be on a, like, I,
1: plane trip soon. So yes,
0: that's right, that's right, <laughs> exactly. It's a big book though, so it's going to be heavy in the in the luggage. But that's the one I'm taking.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's really great, and you know, there's there's something about the fact that those two are c- consistently put out, you know, really good, really deep work and they're not on social media. And, you know, something I said to myself all the time, which is like time to put the toys away. You know, like if I want to, like I'm about to go into a a new novel, like if I want to go into that in a deep way, Mm. I have to put the toys away and the toys are Instagram um, and Twitter. Like, you know, it it is an either or thing. Um, Some writers can do both, but, yeah, increasingly the the people that I really admire um, who do a lot of really great work um, writing-wise, they're not on Twitter anymore or they've just got, like, one, like, kind of a PR account that just tweets out mm. this book. But, yeah, it's um, – and I think for journalists as well, like, you know, every journalist in Australia is on it, but increasingly you see, you know, there's reputational issues, so you see – you know, journalists whose work you admire and they do some insane tweet, you think, oh, God, like, um, yeah. I, I, I now, like, either think less of that person or I'm worried they're going to get sued. It or- deranges
0: us. I mean, it yeah. deranges us clearly. Yeah. I mean, I, a, a friend and mentor of mine lost his job because of a stupid tweet that he sent. And, uh, you know, it was indefensible, but it was just a momentary, you know, slip of the finger telling someone to fuck off. Uh, and that was that.
1: Man, that's um that's a lesson for all of us
0: <laughs> apropos of nothing as the final note. have you read Zadie Smith's piece in the New York Review of Books um about the beach find your beach I think it's called it's about a yeah. it's about a billboard it's an essay about a billboard across the yeah. way from her, which is advertising a beer or something
1: yeah i have i have it's in one of her.
0: Like yeah collection. so good one of my favorites oh, anyway I really um i i encourage people to go and look it up it's still, you can still read it online uh and i encourage so can we get your stoicism book yet bridget
1: no it's still being written but um it's being published by alan and umwin and um it'll come out sometime next year um being 2022 i think the the publisher was concerned that um it wasn't written super quickly in time for the pandemic but i feel like the world will need stoicism um, <laughs> for a bit longer yet. We're not. I, I think mean, if it's lasted for a years. few
0: thousand years, if, it's, if stoicism has made it a few thousand years, then a couple of months, ain't going to hurt. Uh, thank you, Bridget. It's great to talk to you. I thank appreciate you it. It
1: was wonderful. Great chat. Thank you.
0: Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.